Hello, and welcome to the Family Histories Podcast, the show for and about those of us who are sat quietly in libraries, archives, and spare rooms all around the world, tirelessly piecing together our collective social and family history. My name is Andrew Martin, I'm a family historian, and I'll be your host. In this episode, The Lucky will be hearing about my guest's brave relative who lived twice during a war, and we're trying to find the grave of a heroic 19th century veteran and the identity of his sweetheart. So, put down those old militia lists, grab a cuppa, and let's meet our guest. My guest today spent more than 26 years as a newspaper journalist and editor, and so with those skills in looking for evidence and getting that scoop, I think it makes perfect sense that he also happens to be a family historian. More recently, he's also become an author, so before he leaps in to edit my waffling, let's meet my guest, Paul Roberts. Hello, Paul. Welcome to the Family Histories podcast. Hello, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me to be on on the show. Thank you. You're very welcome. I'm curious as to which came first. Was it family history or journalism? It was family history. Good. <laughs> uh, I guess my interest in family history was probably ignited as a young boy. When I was eight years old, my dad gave me a picture of my grandfather or his father in World War I uniform mm-hmm. and the brass tunic buttons from his uniform. Wow. I guess that from there, uh, it's probably no surprise, I ended up uh, becoming a reporter because uh, all I knew at that stage was he was called George Bernard Roberts, and he was just 17 when he went to war. I then asked my dad many, many questions about him. <laughs> but uh, I guess it was the generational thing. In those days, dad said, oh, I don't really know anything about it. And, and children didn't really ask their parents too much in those days. Yeah. So uh, I knew, sadly, I knew very little about George. Uh, but I had a, it was almost like an obsession from a young age of, with war memorials and particularly soldiers with the name Roberts on them. And I would, if I was with my parents, I would say to them, <laughs> are they related to us? Is he related to us? Of course, it would just drive them mad. I bet. They would either say no or they didn't know. And uh, but that that was that was happening when I was still at primary school. So I guess that sort of gives an idea that 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 did come first. Do you think that there are any particular skills from the family history side that helped you with being a journalist? I think so because before I became a reporter at sixteen, I I did write for my school newsletter and uh, and. And there were weekly posts, if you like, from me. I one of the things I uh, I enjoyed doing. I think it was the family history thing was asking lots of questions, <laughs> which I guess put me in good stead for uh, for being a reporter. And I think at my first job interview, I think I probably asked more questions than were asked for me, which is probably not the best thing. <laughs> but I still got the job. <laughs> That's good. If you had lots of questions. But you had parents who maybe didn't know or didn't want to talk too much about your family history. Where did you turn to? Well, what I did, I mean, one of the challenges with family history being young was that there were lots of things I was starting to discover that that perhaps were a little bit uncomfortable. Skeletons in the cupboard, if you like. And as a result, I think I made a conscious decision not to actually follow those through until perhaps after my my parents had passed away. I didn't make that decision consciously then, it just happened. But it made it easier then to um, to check. And what what I did, I was always spending time in the local museums, particularly the Tiverton Museum in Devon, where they've got old newspapers. I loved, even at a very young age, going through old newspapers, tracing (laughs) people with my mum or my, my dad's names and also incidents, little village little village things. And I would plough through, even at a young age, thousands of newspaper pages and uh, and making notes on, on backs of envelopes anywhere and, and kept them. I also, what did help me before my dad passed away, 
I encouraged him to take me to local cemeteries so I could try and find out where his parents, grandparents and others were were buried. And I kept notes from those. And so they, they helped quite a bit. And I encouraged him just to talk as much as he could yeah. about the past because uh, he was really the last link, if you like, for me with with my uh, ancestors. So that, that, that proved quite quite helpful to me that's good uh were there many kind of documents within the family that you could also refer to photos and things like that sadly very little there were some pictures particularly of my grandfather uh, george on my mum's side as well but really i was starting absolutely from scratch but i guess the the, the impetus for me um, there were many years where I didn't do any family history research when I was so wrapped up in journalism. But in my 50s, I started doing family history research more seriously. And I came across a grainy old image of a bearded man on the Internet. It was on the Witheridge Village Archive. Witheridge is a nice little village in North Devon. Okay. It just said John Roberts. There was an accompanying caption which said, John Roberts, who has 30 grandsons serving in the Great War. Wow. And I didn't know who he was. I had no idea he had any connection with me, but I kept that picture for a year. And I went down to the village, checked him out, and he turned out to be my great-great-grandfather. <laughs> and my grandfather, George, was one of the 30 grandsons who went to war. So that one picture... I think has inspired me to do all the family history research I've done since then and also reignited my interest in stuff that I'd done as a as a young boy. So it just just goes to show just one little thing like that, which with an extraordinary outcome, uh, what that can produce. I mean, that's wonderful that you found that yeah, uh, and then kept hold of it. And, you know, I can completely understand that you would then feel very motivated to continue your research after that wonderful uh, coincidence i guess it was I mean, I mean gosh the reason i kept the picture he had wonderful sideburns beard he was wearing a bowler hat and he, he looked like he looked like my dad that's why i held okay. on to it so it but it was extraordinary to find it but also john ultimately turned out to have possibly possibly more grandsons serving in the great war than any other person in Great Britain. I've put that challenge out. Has, <laughs> is there anybody else who had more grandson? No one's come back to say they, they, they know of someone who had more grandson. So, so he was a record breaker as well, which was another great find. And obviously you have turned that discovery into a book. What kind of inspired you to, be, to become an author? Well, I think what I, what I did, I, for a lot of years, I, um, I, decided to try first of all to trace his life i went back to where he lived the farm he he grew up on the uh, the the farm there where he died where his family uh, were living mm-hmm. we traced his steps on the land that he would have walked sat on a bench that he would have sat on a hundred years ago so i wrote about him and then i was determined to try and find all the grandsons who went to war and there were enormous challenges with that because they had quite common names, Roberts, Frank, William, George. Yeah. And when you consider in the First World War, there were 20,000 Robertses alone from the United Kingdom who fought in the Great War. Many of them called William, George, Frank, Roberts. It was a monumental challenge. But I, I traced 21 of them. And as I was tracing each one of them, I think I decided to try and put it all together in a book because the story seems so remarkable. Yeah. So I uh, ultimately decided to, to put that together, basing it on John's story, but also of the, uh, all the grandsons who went to war and called it History Maker. And it was launched locally in Devon 2018, and it, uh, it produced some uh, extraordinary outcomes. Did you find that when you said or presumably told people that you're going to write this book, that people were kind of coming out of the woodwork because they had uh, information they wanted to share? Or were they more kind of suspicious or curious of what you were going to write? That, the latter. <laughs> I mean, I think when I did the first the first version of the, of the book, or two versions mm-hmm. of the first version, I put 
advertisements and letters in local newspapers saying, look, I'm investigating so-and-so. Okay. One or two people did come forward, but I knew there were a lot of people with information and pictures that would help me, but they really didn't surface until the first book came out. Right. When the first book came out, I came across not just relatives that I'd never met before, uh, cousins, second cousins, third cousins, people whose uh, whose fathers were uh, among those who uh, featured in the book. Um, but it led to a family reunion that was held in Devon 2018, in the centenary of the final year of the Great War. Yeah. And 150 people turned up who were all direct descendants of John Roberts, my great-great-grandfather. Wow. And so there were some extraordinary, remarkable uh, meetings. And those meetings I then featured in the second book. (laughs) I also had a special memorial cross for John Roberts, a beautiful oak cross unveiled at Witheridge Churchyard. He was buried there in 1919, but he in an unmarked grave. So now there is a cross there which commemorates him and the 30 grandsons that went to war. So all these things came from... Again, that one picture and the book itself. Were they able to identify where he was buried or was it near to where he's buried? Or? Sadly, no. Uh, there was a map, but it only showed those who had uh, sure. identified the exact location of those who had headstones. But I think uh, John's family didn't, wouldn't have had the money or the, uh, in those days to, to have actually even paid for a headstone. I think that's quite common because people had the choice of commemorates a loved one or you know, put food on the table, I guess. So Yeah. What they did produce for him, his family, was a lovely funeral card, which which was quite common in those days, where there it's a wonderful tribute to him. He was a very well loved man, grandfather, great grandfather. He had fifteen children and a, more than a hundred grandchildren in his lifetime. So it's just incredible. Uh, if you've got thirty grandsons to follow, how did you keep track? Of those 30? Well, gosh, it wasn't easy because uh, investigating them, uh, of that thir- of those 30, I think uh, 20 of them had, had, had four uh, Christian names, Frank, George, William. <laughs> so it's, it was just hard. And uh, I, what, I, what I had to do yeah. was a process of elimination. I r- knew roughly where they lived. I knew exactly where they'd grown up. But then tracing where they'd gone to war, uh, that was playing through parish records, through uh, old parish magazines, through war records, but they weren't always clear. Sure. So sometimes it took, it took up to a year to investigate just one of them and to confirm it was the right one. Um, but it's, I guess it's the old journalism thing, a bit of a dog with a bone. <laughs> Once I got my teeth into it, I didn't want to let go. I wanted to ensure that I would uh, try and, and, I, and establish who they were. I eventually found 21 of those 30 grandsons. Nine of them I have not been able to identify. There are no records, absolutely nothing to confirm who they were. Did you have to go through a lot of military history documents or learn lots about military history terms and what their documents are like? I did. Uh, I I got many of them through some of the established uh, online sites like uh, Ancestry, Find My Past, the British Newspaper Archive, because that's something dear to me. I'm sure. <laughs> I spent a long time looking through those. But I think the greatest help I had was from people who are members of the Great War Forum, which is a a free-to-use forum. I would sometimes put an obscure – I put dozens and dozens of messages on this site. And people who are on that site always came back with either an answer or a clue to the answer. And I think they they probably helped more than any other resource that I was using at the time. That's great. There's a a real sense of helpful community, I guess, with, within that forum by the sounds of it. Yeah, and I think I mean, many of them are ex-military men who've done their own research, written yeah. their own books. And they also know there's a lot of novices, as I was when I first went on there, who were looking for help. And these people, 24 hours a day, seem to be more than willing to offer that help. 
and it's it's not it's sadly it's not probably used as well as it should be but boy did it make a difference to the work that I was doing were there any granddaughters who went to war there weren't there weren't any granddaughters but i found some uh, distant cousins uh, who served in the uh, in the waf and the atc in the in the great war uh, there was one lady who was in the in a special missions unit at western supermare oh where uh, they were basically doing secret operations, First and Second World War. Uh, so I haven't found too much about her, but I'm looking deeper into that. That's probably because it's secret. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's top secret. And probably still covered by the, by the, by the official secrets. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but certainly uh, at least a dozen of them were in the, the WAF uh, and, and from everything from, from cooking to administrative work to other duties. So I was quite pleased to... To discover that, I guess maybe you had some nurses as well. Yes, some were Red Cross nurses uh, working in uh, specifically in, in France. Uh, must have seen some some terrible things. And one or two of them are remembered on war memorials with their own graves in France as well as well as this country. So again, the the records are just starting for for uh, nurses in First World War. There are some very good records that are now freely available online, but sadly they're still uh, in terms of detail, still far behind what you can find out about the men who served. Do you think you've learnt anything about yourself whilst you've been doing this whole research for your family? Yeah, gosh, that, that I'm, I'm always careful using the word obsessed, but I guess I've been obsessed with my, my family history on my mum and dad's side. My mum's has got a very interesting side as well. So trying to do two probably means that not only are you spending far too many hours doing it, well, I've been spending far too many hours doing it. <laughs> but I think uh, what I've learned is there's some amazing role models in my in my past. That some characteristics that that I hope that I would have, if you like, adopted over the years or or, or inherited over the years. Uh, and I think uh, some of the things that I've learned about my family, they were farmers for 400 years in in Devon on my dad's side. I was the first one to break that habit. So I'm, I, I think it took a long time for my dad to forgive me for that. <laughs> but certainly reading about my ancestors from the past, I do recognize some of the things that I do now. There were some writers in my family in the past, as well as farmers. So I didn't go too far off track, I guess. Apart from the book that you have published, History Maker, how else do you share your family history findings? Well, what I do, I've, I've launched uh, a website in the last year to try and, if you like, tell the stories that I've gleaned. There are many, many hundreds of stories I guess I've picked up. And I've turned the research that I've done into news stories, not surprisingly, okay. uh, where, where appropriate. Not all of them would have made that, but I've tried to make them like a breaking news story. And I'm now sharing them on the website. I also promote them via uh, Twitter. And I've printed everything out in A4 format in dozens, dozens of folders that I've got at home. And I, for instance, just, just one or two of the things that may be of interest, I found on my mum and dad's side, more than 500 men and women who served in the First and Second World Wars and the Second Boer War. More than 100 of them died. I found two relatives who died in the Aberfan disaster. I also found my mum had a very strong family link to Winston Churchill. And on and on, there are so many amazing stories that have emerged. It will probably take me best part of 10 years, <laughs> even if I did it every week to share all the stories that I guess I've unearthed on the website. Do you feel tempted at all to dip back into journalism and have, I don't know, a weekly column where you tell these stories or or is that just not appealing anymore? It'd be a great thing to do. I, I would, it, it would. I think there's one of the things I love doing and, and there are still, they're not necessarily family history, but there are still the old pictures that are appearing in papers. But I, I think there's room for that. So maybe it's a good plug for me to get a, a column on a local newspaper somewhere to do this. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I would love to do that. And I think, but mainly to try and encourage other people to do the same things and hopefully with the same kind of enthusiasm 
that I feel I still have because, boy, when you get into this and you do it in a certain way that suits you, you can really, really find that it's it's uh, uh, it's not just exciting, but also gives us all this wonderful window into the past that maybe uh, maybe many people still haven't done, and it's still to be discovered. That's the great thing. So, so yeah, I would love to do that if that opportunity arose. That would that would appeal to me. Well, hopefully, there is uh, someone from a reputable publication listening to this podcast. Uh, we can obviously put you in touch. Um, that would be good. Thank you. And maybe if you did do that, it would inspire other people to research their local history or their family history. So everyone's a winner in that situation. They are. And I think I think that for me, it's always been, I've done a lot of talks about my family history in, in Devon. And I've done one or two workshops as well, just to sort of try and encourage people to yep. uh, how to go into uh, family history and how to make it fun. And where we've done that, it's always been great fun and I've enjoyed it. And I think in those talks, uh, the great thing is that people have come back and said it's encouraged them to look at their own family history again. So that, to me, was the best reward from doing that. It's now the part of the show where my guest picks one of their most fascinatingly good, bad or just plain ugly relatives. And then they tell us their life story. So, Paul... Who have you chosen to introduce us to? Now, the story I'm about to tell has reduced me to tears on more than one occasion. It's about a soldier, Sam Roberts, who lived twice in the Great War. Okay. One of three brothers who went to war. Mm-hmm. He was a first cousin of my grandfather, George Burnett Roberts. Now, I, I have lived and breathed Sam's story in recent years, attempting to walk in his boots as he went to France and fought in the bloodiest battle of the war on the Somme. Of all the soldiers from my family I have researched, Sam's story has moved me like no other. Uh, He was born in the village of Cove, near Tiverton in Devon, on March 6, 1895. He was one of seven children, of John and Elizabeth Roberts, who for many years lived and farmed at Rackenford in North Devon. Sam was 18 and a farm labourer when he enlisted in the Devonshire Regiment in 1913, following in the footsteps of his army veteran father, who at one stage was Batman to Field Marshal Frederick Roberts, who led British forces in South Africa in the Second Boer War. Okay. Sam was serving in Cairo, helping to protect the Suez Canal when war broke out in 1914. He arrived uh, in La Havre in France in the winter of that year. Yeah. He had a baptism of fire going into the trenches just five days after he arrived in the country facing a series of heavy bombardments within those days. Within just a week, he was enduring freezing temperatures on the front line that put at least 50 of his fellow soldiers into hospital with frostbite. Just seven days before Christmas 1914, Sam was shot in the chest when attacking a German trench at a farm known as Moted Grange near Nerve Chapelle. The bullet, fired from an enemy rifle, should have killed him. But he lived to fight another day because a book he kept in his breast pocket took the full force of the blast. Wow. Sam, a private, was one of more than 120 officers and men killed or wounded in that attack. He was cut down by rifle fire as he got caught up in razor wire in no man's land. Initially thought to have been killed, he was barely breathing when rescued from the battlefield by a field ambulance. Still critically injured, he spent many months in intensive care in St. Mark's Hospital in London before returning to his family home in North Devon to recuperate. Now, the Western Times newspaper 
in January 1915, reported Sam's admission to the hospital and added, and I quote, had it not been for a book which he carried in the breast pocket and through which a clean hole was made by the bullet, the shot would almost certainly have proved fatal. Uh, the book that saved his life was a soldier's pay book and was issued to all those serving in the Great War. Yeah. It served as a kind of logbook, I guess, and had to be carried at all times. He was fortunate he was carrying it in his breast pocket. Yeah. I understand most soldiers carried it in one of their trouser pockets. Oh. It recorded things like his earnings, details of his next of kin, vaccinations, and there was also space for a will in that book. Now, Sam was um, invalided out of the army for about a year before he rejoined the Devonshire Regiment towards the end of 1915. Promoted to corporal, partly because of the diminishing number of soldiers at that stage, and he was somebody with experience. Sure. He was in a new battalion, uh, the 8th. He was previously in the 2nd. He was now in the 8th Battalion. And when he returned to the ranks in France, and I found this again mentioned in a newspaper, he was nicknamed Lucky Sam by his fellow soldiers because he had survived that uh, near-death experience. Yeah. On July the 1st, 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, Sam stood shoulder to shoulder with his men in a reserve trench near the village of Mametz on the Somme, ready to join the largest offensive ever mounted on the Western Front. What would become, I guess, the bloodiest and most disastrous day in British military history. His battalion would play a pivotal role in the capture of that village. There's an unusual triumph on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. We hear about lots of disasters, but that capture of the village was one of the triumphs. And that village is about five miles from uh, Picardy in northern France. Now, the Devon soldiers, including Sam, were among 100,000 British and French soldiers who were sent over the top along this vast 23-mile um, front south and north of the Somme. In the days leading up to what was became known as the Great Advance, something like one and a half million shells were fired by uh, the British military to at best destroy and at worst seriously destabilize the formidable German defenses. That bombardment was so enormous, its rumblings could be heard as far away as southern England. Wow. Uh, this is the first day of the Battle of the Somme. There was huge confidence among the British military chiefs that the barrage would crush the enemy and that uh, they basically were so confident they told their soldiers they would be able to walk across no man's land to annihilated German trenches. But Sam, who was 21, knew from bitter experience there would be no room for complacency. Whatever toll that barrage may have exacted, the challenge in taking Mametz was likely to be formidable. Now, in the lull before the assault, he probably would have looked, I guess, this is what I imagined anyway, at vast panorama of the Somme and thought of his brother Frank because just a few miles away at Pozier, he was also involved in the battle on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Okay. Now, in the countdown to the attack, there was huge euphoria that the bombardment had been successful. And, but as you can imagine the... Uh, how people, including Sam, were feeling at that stage. Now, Sam wasn't in the first wave of the attack. That honour, if you want to call it that, was given to a fellow uh, battalion, the 9th Devons. Now, there were huge cheers when it was reported that the German artillery had been decimated. Okay. Uh, when mines were blown up at nearby Free Corps, uh, that euphoria grew. But amid that optimism, one of the officers, the 9th Devons, a guy called Captain Duncan Lennox Martin, was concerned that a machine gun post had survived this barrage. Now, he was um, 
he went to extraordinary lengths to show that he felt it was still in place and he called it the danger spot to demonstrate this potential threat. Uh, He used his skills as an artist to make a detailed plasticine model of the area, the danger spot. But when he showed it to his superior officers, they said, oh no, don't worry. The bombardment would have destroyed all the enemy positions. But the gun post did survive the barrage. The 9th Devons went over the top, were cut down in their hundreds, many before they left the trenches, into what became known as the Valley of Death. Captain Martin, who'd raised these concerns, was the first to fall, fatally wounded at the danger spot. Now, as the battalion losses, uh, battalion's losses mounted, Sam knew it would be only be a matter of time before he would be joining the fray. Yeah. Later that morning, he and his fellow soldiers were called into action, and disaster awaited him and his fellow soldiers. They were cut down by the same murderous machine gun fire as they tried to cross about a hundred yards of no man's land. So Sam's luck ran out that day. He was killed in the uh, in action, in advance in the advance on Mametz, just a few short yards from his own trench. And he was one of more than nineteen thousand two hundred British soldiers to die on that most terrible of days. Wow. Another forty thousand British soldiers were wounded on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Sam's body was retrieved and carried back to the frontline trench where he had started the attack. He was among more than 160 officers and men of the 8th and 9th Devons to be buried there, a site which became known as the Devonshire Cemetery. The cemetery, where there's a headstone in Sam's memory, is unique in being almost exclusively devoted to the dead of a single regiment from one day of battle. There's a defiant 10-word message. The Devonshires held this trench. The Devonshires hold it still on a permanent memorial at that cemetery. When Sam had died, someone had carved those words into a wooden cross, put them near his grave. So those words are, now forever remembered on that permanent memorial. Yeah. Sam's brother, Frank, just to mention him briefly, he survived the Battle of the Somme. But 70 days later, on September 9, 1916, while he was enjoying a mug of tea, a shell burst over his trench, killing him instantly. Two brothers were ultimately killed on the Somme within 70 days of each other. I travelled to Mametz to find Sam's grave. Okay. I was alone at the Devonshire Cemetery when I discovered his headstone. I placed a single rose on his grave and then could not stop crying. Uh, Of course, uh, I didn't know him, but it felt I had got to know him, even though he died 42 years before I was born. I had lived and breathed his remarkable story for a number of years. But I still couldn't explain the emotion I felt that day. It just happened. And I sat in front of his grave in beautiful sunshine for two hours, alone in that cemetery, just imagining the horror of July 1st, 1916. Sam's name is listed on a granite war memorial on the outskirts of his home village, Reckonford. It's also mentioned on a brass memorial within the parish church there. And when I sat in a pew next to that plaque in 2017, I remembered something from my boyhood, which again reduced me to tears. My mum and her family were born in Rackenford. And as occasionally as a boy, I attended the church there. I remember doing one service in the 1960s, again, as an irritating primary school boy asking lots of questions. <laughs> I remembered spotting Sam's name and his brother Frank's name on that very memorial in the church. I remembered 
asking mum if they were related to our family. So I, I didn't stop asking questions. <laughs> uh, she told me no and to shush oh dear. because I could be heard above the minister conducting the service. Okay. <laughs> More than 50 years later, I had confirmed that Sam and Frank were indeed connected to my family. And that link and the question I had asked my mum all those years earlier reduced me to tears. Now, there was a wonderful, remarkable sequel to this story many years later. In fact, 2018, when I held that big family reunion for John Roberts' descendants in Devon. Sam was one of seven grandsons with John Roberts, my great-great-grandfather who died in the war. Uh, When I organised that reunion to mark the 100th anniversary of the end of the Great War, I met a Gerald Roberts for the first time. He was a nephew of Sam. Gerald brought along with him a photo of Sam in World War I uniform, the first time I'd seen a picture of him. So I found that very moving. He also revealed that the book which saved Sam's life at Moated Grange in 1914, with a clean hole through it, was given to his father, Charles, who was Sam's younger brother after the war. Okay. Now, Gerald inherited that book when his father died. So I was speaking to someone who had actually owned this book with the hole clean through it. Sadly, there was a sad end to it because the book went to a school event some years before and was lost there. So that book has been lost, sadly, probably for eternity. But I was just so pleased to have met someone who had owned that book and could describe how it looked. That, that is immensely, immensely sad and moving. Um, and, you know, I've, I felt a sense of anger at that decision about the machine gun and how it was seen as a, a threat and felt to be a threat, but dismissed. And, and sadly, it wasn't. It was. And Captain Martin, he went to extraordinary lengths. I, I, I don't think he could have done any more. But there no. was this general consensus that so many missiles had been fired, so many shells, so much destruction had been rained on the German trenches that there was no way anything could have survived that. And I don't think they were listening to any concerns about it because the the no. the, the, the great advance was 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 near the end of its planning stage, about to go into action. So I but I wish they had listened. I think something like three hundred Devon Devonshire men would moan down by that one mach- from that one machine gun post. It was terrible. Yeah. I'm glad that, that you got to meet Gerald, though, because I guess that was a nice, thought-provoking kind of meeting with him as a close relative of Sam, but also that he had seen and, and owned that book for some time that, that had initially saved Sam's life. It was great to, gosh, something I would never have imagined happened. Yeah. Gerald, Gerald was able to describe the book very well. He was heartbroken that the book had been lost. Okay. Um, but he, he described the, the hole perfectly in the middle of this book. Apparently, it was bang in the middle of it. And he said it still seemed remarkable that the bullet uh, had, you know, would still have entered uh, Sam's chest. There's no doubt about that. He thought it was remarkable, as I do, that Sam had survived that, that first uh, attack. Yeah, yeah. And Gerald also brought along a picture of Sam's brother, Frank, which I saw for the first time. And also also of Sam's parents and Gerald's father, Charles. So I'm okay. proud owner of those pictures and really, really glad that I've got those because I came so close to the story. It was wonderful to be able to put faces to the people that I'd been researching. It's also interesting that you had previously asked as a child about the, the plaque on, on the wall and actually your intuition has been correct and you had proven that actually you were related to it. So there's, yeah. there's something, I don't know, I can't really describe strange fate at play there that, that actually you kind of had known or suspected. Well, I always felt that and it, it proved to be true because there were war memorials, not just in Rackenford, but in, in Witheridge, in, in Orchard Bishop. These are villages where I grew up when I was a young boy in Devon. Yeah. 
And in many ways, the only Robertses on there were, were connected to my family. And I had I did have some kind of inkling. I think with my mum and dad, I think a lot of people did this, that whether it was the First World War, Second World War, it was almost like we've done that now. Everybody's been through it. Move yeah. on. And so I'm sure they knew a lot more, but I was probably just an irritating young boy asking <laughs> too many questions. I think I had a few, I think I had a few smacks to the back of my head as well when I asked too many questions in those days. And then you became a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> I became a journalist. And I got even more smacks to my head later <laughs> on. Yes. Asking the wrong questions. <laughs> Yes, yes, it happens sometimes, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing Lucky Sam Roberts's story. But I think it's time for you now to face the brick wall. If you've never hit a research brick wall, then perhaps you've not been researching hard enough These dead ends are inevitable in our research, suddenly appearing and standing in the way between you and your history for hours, days, months, even years. So in this part of the show, we'll hear about one of my guests' brick walls in a hope that one of you, dear listeners, might have a research idea or a clue that brings it tumbling down. Okay, Paul, what have you got for us? Well, my my brick wall centres on a, a James Arscott. Okay. Uh, he was baptised in uh, West Tynmouth in Devon on November the 9th, 1784. And he was the grandson of my five times grandfather, Thomas Roberts. Okay. James was a, a genuine hero of the Battle of Trafalgar on October the 21st, 1805. Sure. At 20, he was uh, master's mate in the 98-gun HMS Temeraire when she raced to the rescue of Nelson's flagship HMS Victory in her darkest hour. Now, a sniper's bullet had left Nelson dying on her lower decks. Victory was on the brink of being boarded and seized by officers and crew of the French man-of-war Redoubtable, when Temeraire dramatically sailed across the stern of the enemy ship, crippling her with a devastating broadside. Almost a third of Redoubtable's crew were killed in the attack, with cannonballs and 68-pounder cannonades ripping into men crowded on the upper deck. When her captain surrounded her ship an hour later, only 156 of the crew of 643 were left alive. Wow. Now, in the heat of the battle, James helped in the capture of another warship, the 74-gun Fugua. After boarding the vessel with swashbuckling bravado, <laughs> with less than 50 yards separating the vessels, Temeraire fired on and crippled the Fugua. And this is quoted now from the book, The Trafalgar Row sweeping her rigging and upper works bare and leaving her whole side of massive splinters. When the Fugoa drove into the Temeraire, James was one of a 28-strong group of officers, seamen and marines who boarded the French vessel by leaping onto her deck from the main rigging, something you often see in the old uh, 1940s uh, sea adventure films. Yes, yeah, that's what I was imagining as you were saying that. That's what I thought as well. Wish I'd been there. Um, <laughs> now, led by a very brave lieutenant called Thomas Fortescue Kennedy, James and the other men found the figures captain lying mortally wounded on the quarterdeck. Uh, again, this is quoted from Trafalgar Row. They fought their way to the stump of the main mast, and in 10 minutes they had the British colours hoisted and the Fugua was seized. 47 of Temeraire's crew were killed in the Battle of Trafalgar and 76 were wounded. James was one of the lucky ones and survived to fight another day. Upon her return to England, thousands, thousands flocked to see the battle-scarred Temeraire. Among them, was the famous artist Joseph Mallard William Turner, 
who, captivated by the crew's daring do at Trafalgar, sketched the ship and her survivors. Yep. Turner, when he was much more famous, captured her last voyage in 1838 in his famous painting, The Fighting Tamaraire. James was one of 14 men from Tynmouth and among more than a thousand men from Devon who fought at Trafalgar. That figure startled me. A thousand men from Devon. I didn't know that. The Tynmouthmen, they were 14 from 2,000 people in the town at the time, are commemorated on a plaque mounted at the town's ship inn, still there to this day. Okay. James is one of two men from the town who served in Tamaraire. His name is the first to appear on that plank. Now, sadly, James was just 32 when he died on September the 27th, 1816 in Tynmouth. Now, uh, a surviving review of his naval service, which I'm glad was passed to me by someone who was helping with the research, said, and I quote, that being disappointed in obtaining promotion in peacetime, he retired from the service in disgust, broke a blood vessel, and died lamented by all who knew him, both as an officer and a private gentleman. Sadly, despite many, many hours of research, I have been unable to discover where he was buried. But there's an Interesting addition to this story, which, again, I would like some help on. In his will, which was proved in London on October the 31st, 1816, he left a ring to an Eliza Mitchell, his sweetheart, with the motto, accept this gift of a dying officer. Eliza was believed to be a Tynmouth girl. Again, despite huge amounts of research, I have not been able to find out anything more about her. Okay. So those two things, just one clue to identifying where he was buried or a little bit more realize it, it would be amazing to have some help with that. Okay. So uh, where is James R. Scott buried? How are we spelling his surname? It's, uh, it's it, This is my mum's maiden name. It's okay. R. Scott, which is A-R-S-C-O-T-T. Yeah. It's an unusual name, but there are quite a few Oscots still left in Devon and elsewhere. Okay. And then just to check with Eliza, the spelling for Mitchell as well. It's a normal spelling, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L. And presumably you have looked perhaps for the uh, Elizabeth or any kind of variants for both of those names. Yeah, I think I looked at... 20 variations for her surname. <laughs> I can't think of 20 variants. <laughs> I think I looked at about five for her Christian name. Okay. Because I had quite a lot of Elizabeths. There was there was Bess, yeah. Beth, Betty. Elizabeth. I've, they were all in my family. And so I, I, I knew the kind of nicknames and variations. I drew a blank. The problem is Eliza Mitchell was quite a common name in that area at the time. And uh, the only clue I was able to find that was she was from Tynmouth was that uh, in a local newspaper it mentioned in his publishing his will that she was hailed from Tynmouth so I can't be sure she was still living there but I have this vision that she was with him on the day that he died and would have then had his ring given to her when the will was proved. And of course, 1816 is outside of certifications. So there's no informant on a death certificate because the death certificate doesn't exist. No. So you can't pick Eliza up or, you know, confirm that story that she was present when he died. So No, not at all. Yeah, that's annoying, isn't it? And in the will, uh, Eliza Mitchell is named as having hailed from Tynmouth. So she was there at some point, but whether she was still there or originally came from there is unclear. She just was there for a while. I feel quite strongly he died uh, almost certainly in his home in Tynmouth. I can't be sure of that. Okay. But I think I think he, you know, he left, uh, he retired from the service in, in disgust before breaking this blood vessel. So I'm pretty sure he died at home. I think 
he was almost certainly seeing Eliza before he died in, in Tynmouth. So my instinct tells me that she was living in Tynmouth at the time when they were quite close. Of course, I have no proof of that. It's just an instinct. But I think yeah. it's possibly reasonable to, to assume that. Um, if any of the listeners have a research clue or an idea on how to progress this research, what's the best way for them to make contact with you? Ideally, via my website, which is www.robertsand, and it's normal spelling of and, A-N-D, robertsandrscottfamilyhistory.co.uk. Of course, listeners can also go to familyhistoriespodcast.com and use our contact form, and we will send a message straight through to Paul. In the meantime, whilst uh, the listeners are scribbling down all of those details, I think I might just have something to help you but you're going to need to follow me through to the garage. Excellent. Here we are. Oh, what exactly are we looking for? What do you mean? This is it. Really? I thought you were going to ask me to look at a document, not take your scrap metal. <laughs> this isn't scrap. This is a fully functional and highly calibrated piece of scientific equipment. Okay, but what is it? It's my secret time machine. You're joking. This... He's not joking, but it is scrap. Ignore Shandor. He's joking. Okay. Now I am really confused. Okay. Well, let me demonstrate. If you sit over there, yes, then I'll adjust some settings and then send you back in time so that you can solve your brick wall for yourself. Okay. Right. Well, remind me where you wanted to go. September the 27th, 1816, in Tynmouth. In beautiful Devon, England. There we go. You need this. That's a temporal beacon. Keep it with you at all times, and when you want to come home, just press the button on the top. This one? Yes. Perfect. We're all set. Okay, here we go. Paul Roberts, thank you. Good luck and goodbye. Almost. How almost? 1816? Yep. Geelong. Geelong? Australia? Oh... The Family Histories podcast was presented and produced by me, Andrew Martin. My guest was the awesome Paul Roberts with John Spike as Shandor Paterfi. If you've enjoyed this episode, then click subscribe to get the next one, or please consider leaving us a rating or review. Thank you. Approximately no family historians were harmed in the making of this podcast.